Well, it is good to be with you all on this Lord's Day, and I'm excited to dive into chapter 16 of the book of 1 Corinthians. If you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, there are 16 chapters, which means we are officially on the home stretch. As you begin to turn there, I remember showing up for training at one of my night jobs that I had in seminary. I was going to be restocking coffee shops around Southern California, and that involved, as you might imagine, opening up and breaking down a lot of cardboard boxes, a lot of cardboard boxes. It's amazing how everything has to come in its own tiny cardboard box. And so I asked my trainer, what's the best way to go about this? And I expected he would reach into his belt for a spiffy box cutter, like Caleb Klontz used to always carry around with him, or perhaps into his pocket and pull out a nice pocket knife and show me some cool technique. But he didn't do either. He said, here's the best way, and he reached up to his ear. And that's when I realized, tucked behind his ear, he had a ballpoint pen. And he says, nothing opens a box faster than this. Grabbed the ballpoint pan, slashed at the box like Zorro trying to carve a V on, or a Z on his, uh, his enemy's shirt or something, and then stood back, and he kind of smiled at my look of surprise. But sure enough, there it was, the box, wide open, ready to be unloaded. And then he uh, popped that pen back behind his ear like a western gunslinger reholstering his six-shooter. It was one of a number of clever tricks I would learn over the course of that training ride that night. It's fun to shadow somebody who's really good at what they do, isn't it? It's fun to be around a professional who is a seasoned expert at what they do. And as we begin working our way through chapter 16, I'm looking forward to the chance that we have to shadow Paul as a seasoned saint, as, as somebody who has walked in the faith and who has tested the truths of God's word and put them into practical application and to see all of the different aspects of his ministry that are on display as he discusses minutia of, of greetings and travel plans and concerns for the church and collecting offerings and all of these little day-to-day -day bits that were part of his practical ministry. And there's so many things that we can see that are applications of even the truths we've been discussing in chapter 15 and in the previous chapters of this book. But this morning, as we look at verses 1 through 9 of chapter 16, I want us to specifically see two traits of a seasoned saint, qualities that as Paul puts them into action are great examples for us to learn from and imitate day to day in our own Christian lives because we can have all of our theology on lockdown but how does that actually look when we live it out? And we see some great examples of that today. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to stand with me. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 9 says this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, 
For I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to the close of this book, it feels like a, a journey is ending uh, in which we have spent much time at the feet of Paul, and we know more particularly at the feet of the Holy Spirit who has revealed these truths to us. And I pray that you would open our eyes now to see what you have us to learn from the, the intricacies of Paul's personal uh, words here at the close of his letter, that in our lives as well, the, the details of our lives would accord with your will and be to the glory of Christ. And so this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> As I said, I want to observe two different traits that I think we see coming through in this passage about Paul and his practical ministry, and they are not particularly novel, so some of you may have already kind of guessed and filled in your blanks, but if you're taking notes this morning, the first is this, love the church, love the church. The first trait we see in Paul is four ways here in which he very practically in verses one through four demonstrates what loving the church actually looks like in shoe leather and in perhaps an unexpected way. What does loving the church look like when you're collecting offerings? And I think you see this at the beginning here in a concern that Paul is always balancing between his attention and his love for the church universal as it exists all around the world and also his attention that he has for the local church, for particular bodies of believers in their local gatherings Look with me at the beginning of verse 1 there where he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Early in Paul's ministry, he had consulted with the apostles into Jerusalem to ask them whether or not they would even accept him as an apostle. Remember, he referred to himself often as a, an apostle untimely born. He had not actually been among those who traveled with Jesus the appearance of our resurrected Savior to Paul took place after his ascension. But any fears that Paul may have had about his acceptance as an apostle were unfounded because the apostles in Jerusalem immediately accepted Paul as a genuine apostle. They accepted him wholeheartedly, and then they commissioned him to work among the Gentiles, even as Peter had been commissioned to work among the Jews. You can read about this in his letter to Galatia, Galatians 2, 7 through 9 says this, but on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, excuse me, uncircumcised, just as Peter to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked in Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, those were the primary apostles he had gone to, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And in this, they only asked Paul to keep one thing in mind as they commissioned him wholeheartedly and said, yes, we accept your apostleship. We commission you to ministry to the Gentiles. But in verse 10 of Galatians 2, Paul writes this, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles launched, they said, great, clearly God is calling you to do this. Go do this. But in that ministry, please don't forget the poor who are suffering back here in Jerusalem. 
And so our passage is one of three letters in which Paul explicitly discusses a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. You can read about it here. You can read about it in his second letter to Corinth and then also in Romans chapter 15. And Paul here, notice how he has this heart for the specific challenges of the church in Corinth. And he's been focusing on that, but he's also never lost his perspective on the challenges of the larger church of the body of Christ as a whole and how they can share together in meeting those needs. Paul didn't say, well, okay, Peter's going to be the apostle to the Jews, so you guys take care of the Jews' problems. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, so I'm just going to focus on the Gentiles' problems. Paul said, no, we are ministers of the church, and so we care about church problems wherever God's family may be found. I think there's just a good brief reminder here. We got to be careful. Sometimes we can overly focus on local church things to to an exclusion, to a forgetting of what's going on in the church universal. This can historically be a Bible church special, right? Well, you know, I'm so glad that we finally found here the church that's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all out there is darkness. And And that's not right. I am so thankful for Valley Bible Church. I'm thankful for our desire to be faithful to the word of God here. But Jesus is doing his work around the world, around our city. In fact, you want to do something interesting sometime, pull up Google Maps and type in church. And look how many churches are just right here in our valley. And it is, it is good that we are in prayer and in our awareness conscious of the fact that Jesus is doing something beyond the walls of our church. We have a chance to partner in that directly through our, our global outreach ministry. Thankful to Caleb even for highlighting some of those that we are, we are supporting uh, who have been in some cases for 30 years ministering in these foreign fields. But that ministry is happening all around us. And there's a degree to which we as a church should carry together the burdens of the universal church. But also in our day and age, I think it's helpful to remember, don't focus so much on the universal church that you lose your heart for the local gathering. And that's become, uh, I think, a bit of a a symptom of of a shift in our whole world mindset as this idea of being a a citizen of the planet, you know, becomes popular, which, which usually just means so I don't have to be thankful for or have any responsibility to where God's put me. I'm I'm a citizen of the planet, so I just don't have to worry about anything. We can take that and apply it to the church too. Oh, I I, I love Christ's church. I just would never gather among any other Christians because, ew, they're weird. I'll just just go out into into the temple of nature and commune with God on my own. That's not how we were designed to live. A seasoned saint like Paul, who has a true love for Christ and a true love for Christ's bride, is able to keep in mind at the same time the needs of the church universal and the importance of the local church in particular. At the heart of Christian ministry will always be the church of Jesus Christ. That is through whom Christ is doing his work, universal and its local gathering. And at the heart of churches... In a local gathering will be the weekly gathering of the saints that keeps us united with one another. And that's going to be the occasion for this financial gift that Paul is gathering. And so we see the second way that Paul is demonstrating his love for the church, his understanding for it, is by the priority he puts on corporate worship. Notice that he calls them next to take this offering on the first day of every week. 
And it's not a random day that Paul is picking here. Christians from the very foundation of the church gathered on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And there may have been some practical concerns for this. Some have suggested it allowed uh, those who were from a Jewish background to still go to their synagogues on Saturday for for the Jewish Sabbath and then be able to worship with the Christians on Sunday. Some have suggested that It was a a more effective and convenient day for those who were slaves or for the very poor, many of whom were coming into the church, to be able to get time away from their masters and from their places of work to come and worship on a Sunday. But there is one reason that motivated gathering on Sunday more than any other. All four Gospels make a point of emphasizing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday and that that changed everything And from that point on, those who are followers of Jesus Christ began to worship and to celebrate on the day of his resurrection. And even as we just came out of a whole chapter, 58 verses on the centrality of the resurrection into our faith, I think we can even hear echoes of that theme in the background here. Paul is integrating the collection of this offering into the weekly time of corporate worship in Corinth there. In other words, he's not just appealing for this to be an individual project, even though, as we're going to see in the next few words, he's going to appeal to each individual. But he's saying, hey, I'm not just coming around asking you all individually, hey, can we have some money? Can we have some money? He's saying, I want you to understand that this is a work of the body. This is an opportunity for the church. This is an act of corporate worship as well as individual worship. As Hebrews 10.25 reminds us, the gathering of the saints is a critical part of the life of God's people. Here we unite around the preaching of God's word, around public prayer, around the reading of scripture. This is the context where we observe the ordinances of communion and baptism. This is where we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But it's also here that we occasionally join forces in directing prayer and resources to meeting particular needs. And it's been neat to see over the years when those needs have come up, needs of our global outreach partners or needs here within the body, and how quickly those needs are, are met and what joy it is to share in that as a church altogether. It can hardly be said that one loves the bride of Christ who also despises the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. And so I want to thank you all for being here and for joining all of us together to make this a priority. I know that there's days when that's not possible. This is not a legalistic thing, but that this is something valued by us all. And I hope it's a blessing to come each week and not a work of guilt or compulsion because that would fly in the face of what we see next. Paul's third way in which he was loving the church here was by emphasizing gratitude over guilt emphasizing gratitude over guilt. He goes on to say on that first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. And Paul here is giving the Corinthians the principle for how to measure their giving to meet this need of the poor in Jerusalem. And I want you to notice how this is to be a gift of generosity. Paul appeals to the individuals. Here, I want each of you to figure out how much you would like to contribute to this need. He's not writing the church leadership saying, tell everybody in your church to give this much money. But he's not saying, here's, here's the number, here's the percentage, here's the rule. He's not putting a guilt trip on them. 
He's appealing to each of them to give out of their generosity. And that gift is to flow from gratitude in the providence of God. It's to be taken out of the abundance that God has granted. It's not a flat fee levied on the individual. But Paul is saying, hey, in the providence of God, some of you he's going to prosper much. Some of you he may prosper very little. As God prospers you in the providences of God in your life, would you consider from that to give towards this need? And that means some will give much as they have prospered much. And that means some people this year are probably prospering into the red. And they may be able to give very little or perhaps even none at all. There is no guilt or compulsion attached to this gift. Paul explicitly asked the Corinthians to set the gift aside before he even gets there. He doesn't want any sense of pressure influencing their gift as though he was going to stand there in the church and be like, okay, all of you, now now bring your offerings for Jerusalem, which could be very intimidating with the Apostle Paul standing there. He says, no, I want all of that taken care of before I even show up. You figure out what that's going to look like. And when I come, I don't want to have to be seeing any of this going on. Paul's going to actually instruct them about the same gift again in 2 Corinthians before he comes to them. And he gives them this further instruction. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 7, he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's a principle. The application is this. So each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And as we've noted before, the the Greek word for cheerful there is where we get our English word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Now, does that sound legalistic to you? All giving in the New Testament is motivated by love for God, not law. We've probably all heard about the need to tithe 10%. You don't. Tithing is an Old Testament command, which actually, if you really want to be biblical about this, if you combine the tithe with the other various offerings that you're required to give, grain, first fruits, and all sorts of things, it actually ends up being about a 25% tithe. And it wasn't really a tithe, it was a tax. So, if, you, if you're trying to stick to the Old Testament principle, then you can, uh, you can up your, your giving to 25%. There you go. Then you'll be extra biblical. But there is no command to tithe in the New Testament. We are called to give, yes. And we see examples of the early church giving, yes. But the amount of giving is an individual act of worship to be decided by the believer before God. We are to sow bountifully and we are to sow joyfully. How much is that for you? That's between you and your Savior. It has been such a blessing to see over the years how God has prospered his saints here at Valley Bible Church and led them to joyfully give in sufficient abundance for us to accomplish the ministry of Valley Bible Church. And we praise God for this. In fact, there have been several seasons in which the prevailing wisdom that we kept hearing from various people. Do you know how pushy people can be when they're marketing the church for giving software? We have one we like to call pushy pay because they just won't stop calling us. Go away. Constantly telling us, hey, you're going to either have to tighten your belts and deal for or get ready for disaster, or you're going to need to really up your game with some slick marketing campaigns and using all this verbiage and software. And we're not a corporation. We're a body. This isn't a business. This is a family. 
We're not looking to marketing tricks. I love the fact that our offering is a basket in the back that you pass on your way out. Uh, we've even recently moved the giving button on our website to a submenu for members just to get it off the front page. I want to encourage us, don't ever put one penny in an offering because you feel guilty or under compulsion. What you give, give hilariously. And what is given belongs to God. And that's what we'll see next. Because these gifts of money, in Paul's case and in the church today, are contributions to God and to his work. It is important that those who love the church conduct themselves as good stewards with wisdom and propriety. And that's the fourth way that Paul practically loved the church was by making sure that his ministry was conducted with wisdom and propriety. Verse 3, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. The ministry of Paul was an accountable ministry. If you look at the ministry of Paul, in fact, he was careful throughout to make sure that the resources that were given to him were, were well stewarded, that they were entrusted to him in a way that could be given an account for. He had already given himself a church to whom he was accountable by making Antioch his home church. So he wasn't just a, a lone ranger out there. I'm an apostle. I'm just doing my own thing. He picked a home church where he had accountability. He had personal accountability. Paul never set out on his missionary journeys alone. But he always had traveling companions that could be there with him. He had doctrinal accountability. Not only did he go to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles there before he even went and presented himself as an apostle so that he would get affirmation from them of his calling as well. But then also after his first missionary journey, as we'll see in a bit, he went down to Jerusalem for a doctrinal summit to clarify the role of the law in the lives of Gentiles before he went out to minister to them further. He had doctrinal accountability. Now he could not only receive that, but give that doctrinal accountability as Peter found out. That's another story. He also had financial accountability. He provided for his own needs whenever motives could be suspicious. He was clear about the purpose of any funds that came through his hands. And in this case, you can see he provides so many protections against possible abuse of funds intended for others. Paul trusts, notice, the local leadership of this church to choose someone, designate a responsible party in order to oversee the collection and the bringing of that gift to its intended audience. Paul could have said, I'm an apostle, you can trust me, just have a big bag of money waiting and I'll make sure it gets where it needs to go. No, he says, I want you as a church to pick somebody that you believe will be responsible to make sure that that gift goes where it's meant to go. And you might think in a church like Corinth that has so many issues, including money issues, that he'd say, I don't know if we can trust these people. I, I could do a much better job of making sure that that gift is handled with integrity than they could. But Paul is not going to go around God's design of authority. Paul's not going to go around the autonomy of a local church. Paul's going to work with the way God designed things even when it's risky, because that's what propriety demands. And he takes responsibility personally to make sure that all the appropriate introductions and letters are going to be made so that the funds are received by the right people at the right place for the right reason. He's willing, as he says, to participate in, to travel with, to be a part of, but he's not willing to replace 
the gift of the Corinthians and insert himself where it was inappropriate. Paul had taken such great care that when he came to Corinth, in particular, the issue of finances would never cause a questioning of his motives for ministry because of the opportunity for having an assumption that Paul was just in it for the money was so high in Corinth, they were just kind of a cynical culture. In that particular place, he chose to live exclusively off of the funds he generated from his own tent making and the generosity of other churches. As Caleb pointed out in our sermon prep time, in 2 Corinthians, he says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them so I could serve you. Because if I had come to you and you had supported me, you would have questioned my motives. Being a good steward like Paul here means being accountable. Notice it doesn't mean that Paul has a 500-page policy manual. And, and I think in, the, in our modern era, we try to sometimes overcome a lack of integrity and a lack of good stewardship with policy, right? We're just going to have so many rules that it makes it impossible for anybody to ever do the wrong thing. Yeah, how's that working at your business? Or... You can encourage and have real integrity, real accountability, and real stewardship. And that's what Paul models for us very well here. And the fact that he acted so conscientiously, even with such immature churches as Corinth, is just a way that he practically loves the church and supports it and respects what Christ has made it to be. We want to try hard even here at Valley Bible Church to make sure that we're being wise with the resources that we all contribute to this ministry I just want to let you guys know we take this seriously here. Uh, our giving is overseen by, by multiple people. The counting of those offerings is overseen by multiple people with accountability. There's a careful ledger kept of all expenses. Every year a budget is put together, and I want to throw a huge thank you to the deacons here. One of the, one of the worst things that you can do as an elder board is create a budget because we're not good with spreadsheets except for Doug. Doug is good with spreadsheets. Gary's probably pretty good with spreadsheets. But most of us are not very good with spreadsheets. And we're very thankful for our deacons who put together a careful budget every year and that we are able to review and have accountability for all the resources that God contributes. And I just want to make sure you guys know if anybody here ever has a question about any aspect of our church's finances or resource management, that's not a secret. Uh, talk to any elder if you want us to tell you to go talk to a deacon or you can go talk to the deacons and they'll give you the lowdown. We'll tell you as much as we can. Um, but there will be questions that we might have to direct you to the deacons for. We're thankful for people that demonstrate this within our own church body. One of the things we're seeing here is that Paul's love for the church of Jesus is not just an emotional state. right? He doesn't just feel love for the church. He's, he's producing a practical approach to ministry marked by the ability to care for the church at a universal and a local level by a pattern of centering ministry around the gathering of saints, the elevation of grace in all things so that service is not from guilt or compulsion and a careful eye to remaining accountable in ministry so that no loss and no shame would come upon the use of God's resources. And this pattern of loving the church put Paul in the position to be ready whenever God brought opportunities his way, which is what leads us to our second point this morning. And that is Paul's ability to maximize the opportunities God allowed, a theme that comes through clearly in verses 5 through 9. So your second point this morning is this, maximize opportunities. Two traits we see from Paul in these verses, love the church 
and maximize the opportunities God gives you. And just like we saw four ways in which Paul loved the church, I think we see four ways in which Paul maximizes opportunities that God gives him. Beginning with this, have a plan. Have a plan, Paul says, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Paul was a man who always had a plan. He always had a strategy. He spent a number of years in preparation for ministry after his conversion, but as soon as he was chosen and commissioned for gospel work by the church there in Antioch, he would spend the rest of his life engaged in ministry with a plan. And I just wanted to use some maps <laughs> uh, because I want us to just see the strategy and plan of Paul. He went on three missionary journeys. And the first one is from the years 46 to 48. It's about a two-year journey. Paul's route began the church of Antioch. There's his home church. And he's always going to start from and return to that church. And then in his first journey, Paul is going to head with Barnabas to the island of Cyprus, and they're going to minister there through a number of interesting events and some key conversions there. It seems that he was redirected to a new opportunity in the heart of the region of Galatia. And so from Cyprus, he heads north up to a different Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia. You can see Pisidia there. And if you're like, why are there two Antiochs? There were at least 16 Antiochs in the ancient world because naming your city after a powerful political figure was a smart and safe move in the ancient world. So from Antioch, he's going to begin then heading back east through all these cities, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. That's not going to be an, an easy ministry, in particular in Lystra, uh, opposition from Antioch and Iconium catch up to him, and in Lystra he's actually dragged out of the city and stoned and left for dead. He then goes to the city of Derby. And this is interesting. This is where you begin to see Paul's strategy kick in. Paul's in Derby. So we say Derby in Turkey. They say Derby. He's here. He was born here. His home church is here. This is a pretty easy road. And then to here. But Paul says, you know what? Having planted these churches, I want to make sure that they are encouraged and established. And so he turns around, goes right back to the city that just stoned him, and then to Iconium, and then to Antioch, and then all the way back home by, by ship. And this is going to be what his strategy will look like. He gets back to Antioch. From there, he, he tells the church what God has done in the Gentile world. He travels down to Jerusalem. He meets with the Jerusalem council and says, look what God's doing on the Gentiles in Jerusalem. They say, wow, that's amazing. Some of the Jews there say, make sure you tell them to keep the law. And they have a big meeting and they decide, no, that's a bad, bad idea. It hasn't worked for us and it's not going to be a blessing to them. So it's not about the law. Go keep preaching good news of salvation by grace through faith to the Gentiles. He goes back to Antioch. He writes a letter to the saints in Galatia there, the book of Galatians. And then he begins his second missionary journey, 80, 50 to 52, about another two-year journey. For his second journey, Paul has a very clear strategy. <clears throat> He's parted ways with Barnabas. So last time he went to Cyprus, Barnabas is going to go back to Cyprus with John Mark, but Paul's going to pick up Silas, and his heart is, I'm going back to the churches I just planted, and then I'm looking west. And so Paul gets up, he goes back to Derby. I just want to show you a quick picture uh, so that you understand what this was like. If you can go to the next slide real quick. Um, this is the route to Derby. This is not an easy road. <laughs> 
And I want you to remember, as Paul is doing all this traveling, we are talking thousands of foot miles through rugged, mountainous Turkish country. This is hard work. Paul, Paul was in good shape. If he had one of those um, Fitbit things, his step count would have been amazing. All right, uh, to, our, to our map again. So Paul heads north. He then gets up through Lystra, Iconia, gets back to Antioch and Pisidia, and his initial goal is to go straight west through Asia and preach the gospel there, but God changes his plans, and he says, no, the Holy Spirit forbade him to go to Asia, so he said, all right, I'll go to Bithynia. So he heads straight north, and as he gets close to there, once again, God says, no, you're not allowed to go to Bithynia. So Paul says, all right, I'll go right between Asia and Bithynia. He gets to the coast of Troas, and he's there at the coast like, okay, God, what's next? And he has a vision there of a man in Macedonia saying, come help us. And Paul says, ah, that's the new opportunity. So he hops on a boat, goes to Neapolis, and that's when he begins to travel through cities that you've heard in your Bible, Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and Corinth and Athens. And that's the trip where he's going to have his first stay in Corinth. And that's where he's going to write the letters to First and Second Thessalonians, which are, is the church he had just left up in Macedonia before he briefly stops in Ephesus and then heads back Caesarea, says hi, it says, to the saints in Jerusalem, and then goes back home to Antioch. His third missionary journey then is going to be as long as it's about a four-year journey. And guess what his strategy is going to be? strengthen the churches I've just planted and try to get further west. That's his strategy. And so on his third missionary journey, Paul, Antioch, what is is he going to do, right? Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, he's going to go to all these places. This time God doesn't forbid him to go through Asia. So he makes a beeline right to Ephesus. And he stays there for about two and a half years, working and struggling in ministry there. But he had not forgotten about all of his work here further west. And so as he's in Ephesus, he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians and then later the letter of 2 Corinthians because he's worried about that church he planted over there that he knows is hurting. Paul is ministering to them. And it's difficult because he's got a strained relationship with this church. He has heard that they have not received uh, his instruction well. He'd actually written them one letter. They did not receive that well. Then he writes the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. They don't respond to that well. And so Paul actually then delays going to visit them, which had been his initial plan. He sends the letter of 1 Corinthians with Timothy, and Timothy delivers it. He hears, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're not doing good. They don't like what you have to say. So then he writes another letter that we sometimes call the severe letter that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4, when he says, hey, I don't want to go to you in a spirit of harshness. So I wrote this letter to you that was hot to the touch, <laughs> right? It was, I wrote it with tears and I wrote it with agony, begging you to repent in strong terms. We don't have that letter today, but that letter seems to be the one that God used to finally crack through their hard hearts. And so when Paul hears word back that, hey, they're finally starting to repent, he then in gratitude writes the letter that we call 2 Corinthians, which was actually his fourth letter to them from Ephesus, and says, praise God for what he's doing. Here's some other things to help you guys figure this out, and then I'll be on my way soon. Just as soon as, as we see in our passage, as I travel back through Macedonia first. And so he travels up through Macedonia. He will come to Corinth. And then in Corinth, he's going to write a letter to 
Rome. <laughs> There's Rome. Uh, in Corinth, he's going to write a letter to Rome saying, hey, I'm coming to you, and after I visit you, you're going to help me get to Spain. And so what's his plan? Revisit churches, move west. Revisit churches, move west. God has other plans. He'll sail back to Jerusalem to be there delivering the gift he's talking about now, celebrating the Pentecost with them there, and that's where he's going to be arrested, and it will start in motion all the events that will lead to his martyrdom in Rome. So you can see Paul is a man who always has a plan, this basic strategy of spiraling circles, working his way ever outward, ever westward, but always revisiting the places he's been to keep strengthening and establishing the churches. In the background of all the letters that you read in your New Testament by Paul is this strategy for world missions. And it's a reminder to us that plans are not an imposition on the work of the Lord, but they are the framework for approaching the work of the Lord. What is the mission God has given you? Whether it's your personal growth in Christ, it's your, whether if you're a child or a youth here this morning and you're in a season of schooling and underneath the leadership of your parents, whether it's your job, your marriage, your family, what is your plan? What is your strategy to accomplish the work of God for you? You know the old adage, right? Those who fail to plan die wondering what went wrong right? And all of this may make it sound like Paul was a robot running from place to place, rigidly delivering his market speech and rushing off to the next thing. But that is certainly not the case. Paul had both a plan and a heart for ministry, and he was willing to take the time that was needed to minister to people. And we see that in verse seven. Second way that Paul maximized opportunities was by taking his time. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, but I hope to remain with you for some time. As I said, Paul knew that the relationship he had with Corinth was strained, and he intended to take the time it would need to repair that relationship and to encourage the saints there. It's the heart of a true shepherd. He is not a lazy shepherd who won't go when he needs to go, but he isn't a selfish shepherd that just dumps off resources and runs, right? He could have just said, hey, I sent you four letters. Deal with your issues. But he loves the Corinthians. And he has just reminded them in this book, what is the first tenet of effective love? Love is patient. Love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And in fact, while Paul was there in Corinth, he wrote this to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And near the end of his life, Paul would leave Timothy with these words in 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 2, famous words directed to preachers and a lot of convocation ceremonies. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who was to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out to reprove, rebuke, exhort. And that's kind of where I think a lot of pastors wish the verse ended. With great patience and instruction, taking the time to listen, to understand, to see the real need, to meet the real need. This is the mark of effective ministry. And if we're honest, and I'm putting myself in this as well, how many of our wives, how many of our children, how many of our friends wonder why we don't care about them enough to try to understand what is going on in their lives while we're busy sleeping well at night thinking, 
What a neat and tidy answer I've given to everybody's problems today. It is time-consuming and difficult to minister to people, and Paul was a good example of taking the time necessary, whenever possible, to love people. And notice that whenever possible in the previous sentence, Paul had a plan, and he had a loving strategy for advancing the gospel to new places and and administering it effectively to new people. But Paul was very much aware that our best plans are always rewritable by the pen of God's providence. And that is why Paul's ministry was a study in submitting to the direction of God. And you see that right here in Paul's plans. He lays out his strategy where he wants to go, what he wants to do, and then he doesn't forget to put this little phrase on there, if the Lord permits. Because Paul, as we even looked at on the maps, he was no stranger to unexpected changes in plans. I'm sure he hadn't put it on his calendar, get stoned in Lystra, right? I'm sure he wanted to preach in Asia, but had been forbidden He battled health and eyesight issues along with the thorn in his flesh. He spent months and sometimes years languishing in jails instead of out where he desired to be. And he never, as far as we know, made it to Spain that had been so much on his mind and his heart. And I suspect that more of a few of us this morning can relate. Uh, By a show of hands, how many of you have ever made a plan that didn't work out? Anybody else ever had that experience? Okay, a few of you. All right, good. All right. It would seem... For nearly all of us, this is an important lesson for us to all learn. It's good to have a plan. It's good to have a plan, but no plan of ours is ever to be held in higher regard than our submission to God's right to do as he pleases in our lives. This principle is laid out well in Proverbs 69, which says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And how to approach that is laid out effectively in James 4, 13 to 15, when it says, hey, don't just be talking about, I'm going to go here and do this, and I'm going to go there and do that. You don't even know if you're going to die, James says. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. I don't do this perfectly, but I've been trying to learn since I was exhorted to do this, to, to work the phrase Lord willing more into my vocabulary. And I want to invite you to do that as well, if that's not a habit. It's just a simple, simple way to constantly remind ourselves and remind others that our plans are submitted to the will of God. If we want to maximize opportunities that God gives us, that means we must be willing to see those opportunities go in a very different direction than we had anticipated and often without warning. And it's worth asking ourselves this question this morning. What plans do I have that should God change them, I would be upset at God about? What plans do I have that if God changed them, I would use it as an excuse to be mad at God? And there's a good chance that those are very good plans, that those are very sound plans, but no plan can remain a healthy thing in our heart when we are unwilling to submit it to God. And that means it's not just plans like vacations we want to go to or that house you want to build on acreage or, or something like that. It also means plans for your family, plans for your ministry, plans that matter. The Christian life is lived in this state of being steadfast and immovable in truth and holy living, but also flexibility and submission to the changing providences of God. Paul never let his plans prevent him from moving on when God called him to move. But as we're going to see last this morning, he also never allowed challenging circumstances to be an excuse for running away from the ministry God had already called him to. 
And we'll see that in our last observation in verse 8 this morning. Don't easily abandon fruit. Don't easily abandon fruit. Look at verse 8 and 9. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul ends his little instruction in our text this morning by saying, hey, I'm I'm excited to come to you. I'm going to go through Macedonia. I want to visit those churches. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to take the time it takes, but, but I'm going to be here for a bit. I'm going to be here for a bit. I'm going to stay till Pentecost. And in some ways, you could, this missionary journey is like a tale of two Pentecosts. He stays in, in Ephesus until this first Pentecost. Then he travels around Macedonia to Corinth, picks up the offering, and he gets back to Jerusalem for the next Pentecost the following year. And as he, as he writes this, he gives a reason for remaining where he's at, and that is this. He has found an opening for fruitful ministry. And, and we know that that's the case as Paul's been evangelizing and, and teaching in the school of Tyrannus. As he's been ministering and working, he's been, he's been able to see fruit. He, right, he's been able to see people coming to the Lord. Enough so that Paul also is, unaware, is not unaware that that's causing some heartburn among some local idol vendors. Right, there, there are people who make these little souvenir idols to the goddess Artemis there in Ephesus, and they are none too happy with Paul cutting in to their idle sales. And Paul can, can see the tension that's building. No doubt he is, he is sure, as one uh, commentator said, that a ruckus is about to break out. And, you know, if you go to these places today, the modern-day silversmiths have just figured out you just, put, you just make silver crosses and put them next to the idols of Artemis. But back in this day, they did not do that. Ministry is risky business. Risk assessment is a confusing business. But I think Paul's, Paul's priorities here give us a helpful principle for how we figure out how we are to conduct ourselves in similar situations. Paul says this, I found gospel fruit here. And as long as I can, I'm going to stick it out to make sure that that fruit gets established. And the fact that there are adversaries who are trying to kick me out is an opportunity not for escape, but for prayer. And I think that that's a a great mentality for us to have. There are going to be times when God shuts a door. You don't have a choice. He's going to kick you out of places and you don't have a choice. But I think we need to be very careful about being skittish in the ministry that God calls us to. When you're in a place, see if there's fruit. I liken it to imagine a miner. If you're a miner and you start digging a shaft and you go and there's nothing but valueless rock, at some point you say, this is probably not the best place to dig a hole. That's fair enough. But if you're a miner and you go into a shaft and you strike that vein of gold, then what happens if there's a little collapse and you have to clear it out? What happens if it's in a difficult place to get to? What happens if there are, there's a leak in the well that's flooding it and you have to pump it? You find a way to work around the hardships as long as there's gold in that mine and you keep pursuing it until it's impossible to pursue it any further. And that seems to be Paul's ministry opportunity. There was places he went where he was rejected wholesale. And you can think of it to, for example, the, the Jews You can read it in Acts 16 when he went into their synagogue and they just said, we have nothing to do with your gospel. And he said, fine, then I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm just going to go talk to the Gentiles. Right? When he found a hole that had no gold in it, he said, I'm not wasting my time here. But when he found a place where there was gospel fruit, 
He said, I don't care how hard it is. I'm going to stay here until God makes it impossible for me to do otherwise. Paul was a man, in other words, of godly courage. He made plans that put God first. He took the time necessary to love people well. He submitted to the providences of God, and he was unwilling to abandon the fruitful work of the Lord, even in the face of danger. He maximized his opportunities just as we should maximize ours, not fearing the world and looking always to the promises secured in the resurrection of Jesus from death itself. There's more to learn from Paul in these closing verses of 1 Corinthians, but I hope this morning that we've been reminded of that simple yet practical hands-on encouragement from our text. If we would call ourselves servants of the Most High God, then let us practically love the church and faithfully maximize every opportunity he brings our way, silencing the selfish cries of our flesh that would distract us and discourage us. We press on in a hush of anticipation listening for those words we long to hear at the end of our race, just as Paul did. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and you'll be dismissed. Father, make us faithful, we ask, by the power of your Spirit working through us. We desire that, like Paul, we would love your church. We would make the most of the gospel opportunities you bring into our lives, not just as a sentiment and as a desire, but as the actual day-to-day operations of our lives and the decisions we make and the effort we spend and the resources we use. And may you use all of this according to all of your providences, according to your good pleasure, to bring your son much glory right here in our church and to the uttermost parts of the world. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. You're dismissed.